Welcome to She, They, Us, a podcast about making room in housing for women and gender diverse people. My name is Andrea Reimer, and I was elected to Vancouver City Council from 2008 to 2018. I teach about power and policy at the University of British Columbia. I'm a longtime community activist living in Vancouver, and I will be your host for this podcast, which is brought to you by the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing. This is the second episode in our series. In the first episode, we did a reality check on how households led by women and gender diverse people are faring within the larger housing crisis in Canada. We heard from experts in housing, poverty, and gender studies who all painted a pretty challenging picture of housing access for people living in poverty in Canada. And women and gender diverse people are much more likely to be living in poverty. In today's episode, we'll meet some of those women and hear from them what it's like to survive the housing crisis when the rules of the game are stacked against you. My name is Hillary Chapel. I live in Calgary, Alberta. I live in my wife's house. She owns her own house on the Rose Street and the Rice in Calgary. Hillary is doing pretty well right now, but it hasn't always been that way. In our first episode, we talked about the hidden homeless and how women were much less likely to be counted as homeless as they often live in precarious housing situations that point in time counts don't catch. For several years, Hillary was one of those women. Despite struggling to find housing she could afford and spending time sleeping on couches, floors, in her car, and in shelters, she has never been counted as being homeless. I asked if she would share her housing journey with me. I was homeless in Calgary, but I went to Edmonton. Well, I wasn't homeless, but my other wife and I separated. I had no money, so I went to Edmonton. I lived in nine separate houses, part of the hidden homeless. I lived in a place in Calgary, and they took all my stuff. I had to start all over again. Well, I couldn't get work. I tried. I worked once in Edmonton um, at Dollarama and at Boston Pizza. I had a car then. I had to give up my car because I couldn't make payments on it. But that I stayed with a friend four times, the same friend. Sometimes I was on, when I originally went there, I was on, um, what was I on? a cot and then I was on a cot again then sometimes when I went back after being kicked out I uh, stayed on the floor sometimes in a sleeping bag and a pillar on the concrete floor it was pretty brutal moved out from Teresa's the first time I got an apartment and I was there for a year and I was working for Walmart. I couldn't pay the bills again. I had to go to a payday lender. I managed to pay it off, but Walmart was disgusting. They treated me very badly and abused me. So I left and I left and went back to Teresa's again and put my stuff in storage, the storage I had. Then eventually I moved back to Calgary. I was here for a month with my car and not a car. I drove a van with all my stuff. 
and then she kicked me out because my EI didn't come through. I couldn't get a job, but I tried. My EI didn't come through on time and I had to leave and I was on the street for one night. And then I went back to Edmonton, Red Deer again. After 11 days, she was a friend. She didn't want me there. So I had to go back to Edmonton again. I lived with friends for three months. They didn't want me, so I found someone I went and got coffee with. I stayed there for six weeks. Oh, who else? There was Bev. I went and moved in with her. I can't remember when, but this all happened in the period of 2012 to 2014. Um, I stayed with Bev. That didn't work out. She didn't like me, so I had to move back to Teresa's again. I can't remember the sequence. It was so long ago, and I'm nearly 63. I'm getting old. Um, and then eventually, I came back to Calgary and got into the shelter. I asked my late sister to help me. She got me an appointment in the Y in Calgary, and I felt like I was home for a while. So I was in the shelter for 15 months. I met my wife online. I was time, I was ready. And we both signed on the online link at the same time. And when I met her, we immediately were attracted to each other. We fell in love and I asked her to marry me after three months. And she asked me to move in three months later, Christmas Eve, 2015. I asked Hillary about what the main barriers were for her to accessing housing. Her answer is very clear. What were the barriers? I think money. Hillary's life wasn't always like this. Because of, I had my disability um, three years ago, but I worked at Target when I was in the shelter. We all know what happened to Target. They went out of business. And before I left, I hurt myself so severely. When I was with my first wife, I used to pour very heavy skids of milk in and out of the coolers and put them away on my knees and up and down and lift them. And that eventually screwed up my back. So I couldn't work anymore. I'm on ACE right now, but they're screwing me around as well. And is ACE a government program? Assured income for the severely handicapped. Because I'm married, I don't get enough. They reduce what I get, and the act hasn't been changed. We're waiting for another government to get in, the NDP, and they promised they would change the act and re-index age. So we're hoping in the end of May, we can get Rachel Notley in. For context, Hillary and I talked in April 2023. At the time we talked, the Alberta election was about to be called. Ace rates had been raised on January 1st, 2023 by 6% in line with inflation to a maximum of $1,787 per month. In Alberta, the poverty line is $2,758 per month. And Hillary doesn't get the full amount. As she mentioned, because she's married, her benefit is clawed back and she's even further below the poverty line. This policy puts women who are disabled in a tough position 
making them more likely to be dependent on an intimate partner for housing. For single renters living with disabilities, housing has its own challenges. Meet Heather. My name is Heather Hannon in Fairburn. I'm in Edmonton, Treaty 6 territory, a Masquichi-Waskahican traditional meeting place of many Indigenous groups uh, throughout the millennia. I'm currently living in a two-bedroom townhouse, uh, which I really love because I've lived in apartments all my life. And I like having the outdoor space, but it's way below market rental because it's going to be demolished in a year or two. I asked Heather if she'll share some of her housing journey with me. So I left uh, my family home at 17 because I could not wait to be an adult and do all the things that adults do. And uh, in the 35 years since, I've lived in 37 different places and also bounced back to the family home when broke, heartbroken, or becoming disabled. I've never lived in anything different than rental, but I've lived in everything from a high-rise apartment, which was very nice, to a 14 by 24 foot square room. Uh, with the bathroom in the hallway in the basement with no laundry facilities and just about everything in between. I think the biggest challenge in finding housing, particularly now that I'm a disabled person, is just the cost. Moving 37 times in 35 years is a lot. I ask her what the main challenges have been for her in finding and keeping housing. I do get a rent supplement of $500 a month, but we are so below what's considered affordable in Edmonton that we're really in substandard housing. Finding a place is usually fairly easy uh, if you're willing to settle for less than you ought. And... Um, What's driven me out of a lot of places are rental increases. I had a great two-bedroom place in an older building in a bit of a sketchy part of town, but lots of also friendly people. And uh, the building was sold and the rent shot up 28%. So I had to move. You're probably starting to see a pattern here. In the first episode, we learned that the housing crisis is not actually a housing crisis, at least not for everyone. In fact, for some, it's a housing windfall. For those who don't have the money to access the current cost of ownership or rentals in the housing market, there is a severe housing shortage. The higher your level of poverty, the more likely and the more acutely you are to experience Canada's current approach to housing policy as a housing crisis. Hillary and Heather have each found housing that works for them at different times, but then either their income goes down or the rent goes up and they have to move. In a housing market that favors people with money and mobility, people living with disabilities have a disadvantage in both areas. According to StatsCan, in 2021, the median household income of persons living with disabilities was about 25% lower than the total median household income in Canada. Women living with disabilities make even less and their barriers to employment are substantial. Provincial governments recognize barriers to employment for people with disabilities with a differentiated social assistance rate like AISH in Alberta, but that rate is nowhere near the average cost of housing. To make matters worse, 
At best, disability rates are indexed to inflation, but in many provinces, rents can go as high as the landlord thinks they can get. I asked Heather about rent control in Alberta. There is rent control in Alberta, and in the way that landlords can increase the rent once a year, but there's absolutely no cap on how much they can increase it. Even in provinces that have rent control, they're an imperfect tool. In BC, where I live, government policies are supposed to limit rent increases to 2% for existing tenants. In 2022, the average rent increase, it was 14.4%. This happens as a result of what are referred to as rent evictions. This is when a landlord forces you to move by claiming they are renovating so that they can charge the new tenant whatever they want. Rent controls in BC at least, don't apply to new tenants. I'm interested to know if Heather's disability has impacted her ability to rent new places. Because we've only ever met on Zoom, I don't know if her disability is visible, so I ask her about that. Can I ask you, because I can't, on Zoom, I can't tell one way or another, but is your disability visible? Um, at times, I have um, four autoimmune dis- disabilities, disorders, Um, two of which cause pain. I have three other chronic pain issues. I have Tourette's syndrome, so sometimes that's visible. Um, So I'm neurodivergent. And I also have depression and anxiety. And I have physical ailments so that I can't stand or walk very far. Wow, that is a lot to manage. Have you ever had the sense that your ability to access housing has been harder because of that? Putting aside what you can pay, does it change the way that landlords relate with you? Well, uh, one place I applied specifically, I knew the resident manager. He was an old friend of mine. And he told me, do not put that you're on disability on the application. They will not accept you. Um, Other than that, it's just having to live always on the second floor. So there's only one flight of stairs. Whereas I always used to try and get the top floor so there was no one above me. Uh, With the anxiety, I had to leave the last place because I had people on all sides of me except one, and they were loud and violent and just not nice people, and the management was not willing to make accommodations for my disability, so I had to leave. I asked Heather about what she liked about that place, and this leads to a conversation about her impending need to move when her current housing is demolished. Well, I was happy enough there for eight and a half years, which is the longest I've lived anywhere. And uh, I quite liked it. It was on a good street, lots of shops and cafes and uh, little mom and pop restaurants. Uh, just the kind of cultural amenities that I like, and which is also why I like to stay in the city center. I don't know where I'll go. I've been looking for um, some townhouses. Um, I have looked at other condos or townhouses, and uh, there are more in rent, which I could probably handle. But in where I am now, the utilities except electricity are covered in the rent and in the other places I would be paying all the utilities on top of the rent. 
Location is a huge issue for Heather because of her disability. We talk about this. You know, there are lots of townhouses and even some not too much farther out of the city center, but a lot of them don't have openings or I can move to the other side of town or I could live in the suburbs, which I'd really prefer not to. Based on how Heather talks about getting around her community, I'm guessing she doesn't drive. So I ask her about that. Yeah, I I don't drive. I haven't driven for years. I used to choose a lot of places I live based on the proximity to transit because I can't walk very far. So if it had bus stops close by, it was great. But I'm at the point in my disabled life now where I can't take regular transit and I rely on the paratransit, which is good in a way because theoretically I could live anywhere, but it also sucks up a lot of time in waiting. And while it's good in the way that it's door-to-door transportation, you have to wait an hour and a half between trips. You can't run in and do five-minute errands and then get on the next bus, you know. I was very athletic in my younger years and totally took mobility for granted. And it wasn't until I was out in Halifax doing my grad studies that things started to go awry and I was having to take the bus to the main campus because I couldn't walk that far anymore. If I want to run errands, I usually have to rely on friends and I'm very fortunate that I have good friends who will drive me around and uh, and wait for me to run into places and do what I need to do. And I'm very fortunate that they don't very often ask for gas money or I'll I'll offer it if it's a longer trip of course but um, I'm fortunate to be surrounded by good people and when you say surrounded is that literal like are most of your friends nearby or are they spread across the city they're spread my friends are spread across the city uh, but tend to either be easily accessible to this area or work nearby or have a relative nearby so that they're often near the area and they don't mind making an extra trip. I also have uh, a friend who will run errands for me on Sunday. She doesn't even need me to come with her. She just picks up my stuff and goes and picks up what I need and comes back. For groceries, I've been using Instacart. Uh, I used to rely on friends and family to help me get groceries. I'd order them online and we'd go pick them up. And that just left me feeling beholden to them. So I retired that notion earlier this year and have been paying a little extra for Instacart. I ask Heather about her ideal housing. Really, I'd like to stay here. Um, I love my location. I'm right at the crossroads, a three-way crossroads. So I have a great view up the street, a tree boulevard. It's a fantastic community, uh, very community spirited. I do some volunteer work for the community and um, 
I mean, I have so much space in here. I have two bedrooms. I have my own washer and dryer. It is such a luxury to be able to leave your clothing in the dryer overnight for like two days if you can't make it to get it. Because you can't do that in, a, in an apartment. And so if I could stay anywhere, it would be right here. Heather is not alone in what she wants. In 2019, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, or CMHC, did a consultation that created a report called What We Heard, The Unique Housing Needs of Women. The report was undertaken to support a commitment in Canada's national housing strategy to ensuring that 25% of national housing strategy investments support projects that specifically target the unique needs of women and girls. In case you're wondering, women and girls make up 51% of Canada's population. But back to the report. They found that most women want exactly what Heather wants, a space that feels like home, a space where they have easy access to safe outdoor spaces and laundry facilities, a space that's accessible to them and their families, and somewhere that they can easily get to the services, stores, and facilities they use on a regular basis without a card. This vision for housing is shared by those who study housing solutions for a living. We met Carolyn Weitzman in the first episode. She's a well-known expert in feminism, housing, and what is referred to as the right to the city for women and girls. I asked her what the future of housing she would like to see is. It's always really important to me, particularly in these very challenging times, to think about what it looks like when it's fixed. So what I, the kind of future I want to see is well-located housing that is close to services and jobs and public transit and um, community and family that's culturally adequate for um, Indigenous women in particular uh, and two-spirited people, but everybody. Um, and that where housing is much more of a place to live and much less of a way to make money. Um, what I see, I don't know. It's It's a time when a lot of basic things that we have taken for granted are, um, you know, the chickens are coming home to roost. A lot of underinvestment in healthcare is um, really showing um, a lot of 30 years of underinvestment in the social safety net, particularly around housing, is leading to additional homelessness. So I like to think that that's going to mobilize everybody to action and to a clear sense that we have to start investing in community. I think that housing, particularly home ownership, has hit the point in Canada where a lot of mainstream banks are saying Canada is headed in a really dangerous direction. We're putting so, like Canada has the highest level of household debt in the world. Um, and one of the lowest levels of social investment in, in certainly in rich countries. So, you know, at a certain point, it just blocks off our creativity. It blocks off our ability to be a caring society. It blocks off new innovative uh, 
technologies we're going to need to successfully combat climate change. Again, it's sort of the housing history of theory of everything. I think that we're in a really, really dark place if we continue to ignore the need for low-cost nonprofit housing. I'd like to hope that we don't end up in that dark place because it's already pretty dark. Hillary and Heather's housing journeys both illustrate how poverty and a shortage of affordable, safe, and appropriate housing combine to create housing crisis. But both are white women without visible disabilities. Accessing safe, affordable, and appropriate housing gets even more challenging still for women and gender-diverse people who bring visible intersectional identities. Meet Lori Dietz. She's an Indigenous woman, and a single mother living in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. This is her telling the story of coming to the first Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing Symposium in 2017. I am part of the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing. I was asked to come speak there as a person with lived experience in their first symposium in 2017. And um, I really wasn't too sure. I knew that I moved a lot in my life and I, I wouldn't have said at that time that I, I struggled with precarious housing, which I laugh at now, now that I look at it, I have. But up at, at that point, I then I counted, and it was 43 homes at that time. I, I had figured out that I had moved out, and I've moved quite a, a few times since then, too. And uh, so once I got there, and then, of course, listened to all the other women speak and their stories in shared mind, which, you know, doesn't just include, like, precarious housing, of course, struggles with, um, my son has a disability, he has ADHD, so he has had certain needs. I struggle with neighbors not getting along because of racism or profiles of things like that. I Where I live now, that's her big, biggest thing is she has a problem, she doesn't want to talk to me, she calls the police. So there's so many different ways and so many different that housing and things affected me. And until I heard other people's stories, I never realized those were factors in my life. In our next episode, we're going to hear more from Lori and other women who deal with multiple barriers to accessing housing. I hope you'll join us. This is She, They, Us, a podcast about making room and housing for women and gender diverse people. To find out more about the She, They, Us campaign, you can visit the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing webpage where you'll also find resources from this episode and can add your voice to the army of women and gender diverse people fighting to make room in housing.